Just a reminder that the Dear Prudence podcast happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash prudipod. Hey, Prudy listeners. This episode that you're about to hear was recorded before many were affected by the coronavirus pandemic. So if it sounds like the uh, show isn't really addressing the current level of global anxiety, there's a reason for that. And that's just because we got these in the can a while back. We hope everybody is staying safe. Now on with the show. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Alyssa, a public health grad student and knitter in Philadelphia where she lives with her enormous puppy, Go Birds. (laughs) Hi, Alyssa. Hi, Danny. (laughs) I am so happy that you're here um, and I'm so happy that you made me say Go Birds in the the bio because... (laughs) Listeners of the show might know I don't I don't really follow sports, but I love whenever Alyssa says go birds. I just find it somehow like so quietly invigorating. And was it like was it you who started this or was it somebody else? Oh, no. Oh, no. This is a this is a Philly thing. It's a whole Philly thing. It is a whole Philly thing. (laughs) I totally thought it was just a you thing. And I thought that like you invented it. No, but I have been uh very loose with my usage of it. A sixer is a type of bird. A grad student is a type of bird. Anything is a type of bird. Go birds. A podcast is a type of bird. (laughs) Damn, I already messed it up. A podcast is a type of bird. Go birds. (laughs) I think that's true. Yeah. I I think one of the things that I enjoy a lot about sports culture, even though, again, I don't follow it, is just the enthusiasm. And I think that's part of why I'm drawn to, like, sports ephemera. Or is sports ephemera like um, like old basketballs and trophies and stuff? Yes. I, I think, you know, sports. Periphery, whatever the peripheral culture is. That's Yes. I like. That's I mean, and that's a lot of times the best part. Like people talk about eating hot dogs at baseball games more than they talk about baseball itself. And, you know, that's also a valid way to enjoy sports. And I support everyone into that. Everything in sports is valid is, I think, really just the message that we want to get across to the people today. Yes, I think that's the big takeaway. That that, and the fact that I wrote today, again, about the anxiety dream I sometimes have, which is that they grew back. Oh, yes, I saw that. I laughed very hard on the trolley. I just sometimes have a dream and I'm, I look down and I'm like, oh, they grew back. That's terrible. <laughs> like, now I have so many chores to do to make them go away again. And like, it's, that's always my feeling in the dream is just like, man, I got to do this again. <laughs> And that's tiring. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's anyways, a lot of steps there. There's so many steps to getting your breasts removed. Um, that doesn't have anything to do with <laughs> any of our letters today. Sometimes it does have something to do with our letters. Would you please read our first one? Happy to. Uh, subject, my brother, the mooch. Dear Prudence, for the past four years, my brother and his family have been living rent free in a property owned by my parents who even pay the utilities. Originally, this was supposed to be a short-term thing, while they looked for a new home, but they've hardly even looked. My parents make excuses for him, and hey, it's their money. 
except I just learned that my brother has also borrowed approximately $100,000 from my parents over the past three years. They're retired, and while they've saved well, they can't possibly afford to keep this up, especially without the income from the rental unit. My mom complained to me about it, but I can tell she has no will to stop enabling him. He's been fully employed this whole time, earning more than $65,000 a year. His two kids are in public school. His wife doesn't work. They even take luxury vacations. My fear is that in a few more years, he will have drained my parents' retirement funds and all three of them will look to me. I got a late start on my own retirement savings and have zero intention of risking that to bail my brother out. Do I speak up about this now to my parents, to him, to them all? In case it wasn't obvious, he is very much the favorite, and I'm not sure anything I say will be listened to. But it seems kind of cold to wait for the inevitable plea for cash and just shut him down after he's already desperate. How do I tackle this? So I feel kind of of two minds about this one. Like, my first response was very much like, if no one said anything directly to you, I don't think you have to make it your responsibility to anticipate what unreasonable things your brother might do in the future. Mm -hmm. And it's not cold to, you know, like it it would maybe be cold if you had, whenever he had said like, someday I sure hope to borrow money from you. And you had said something (laughs) like, yeah, maybe knowing full well you didn't intend to. But frankly, even then, like, Mm -hmm. I I don't think that's cold. But like, this is so far from that situation. Um, Saying no to a ridiculous, preposterous request that your brother might ask in the future. No, I I don't think it would be cold. So yeah. on the one hand, I want very much for you to just be like, this is my nutty brother's bad decisions and it's not my problem. If he ever asks me, all I have to do is say like, nope, and mm-hmm. then move on with my life. But mm-hmm. I also know that it might prey upon you. So in, in that sense, it might be worth considering, but I, I don't think there's an obligation. What about you? I, yeah, I think it's hard to... Um predict what the future is going to look like and to be sitting here being like well i better say something now because otherwise he is assuming that like the letter writer has gone several steps down the road to not only like where they are now they're now it he's desperate and there's so many things between living with my parents for free and fully employed versus very desperate and asking me personally for money. And I think that's a really good point because especially he seems like the type of person who might experience the feeling of desperation mm-hmm. before he was actually at a point of like, I don't know where I'm going to live. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But so I certainly think you can talk to your mom about this. Yes. yes. Not even in the sense of like, hey, by the way, like I'm not going to help anybody out in the future, but like just in the sense of mom, you sure do give him a lot of money and it seems to be like difficult for yeah. you. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about other options? Like, do you, do you want to consider not giving him money or maybe you don't want to like explore that or have that conversation or offer advice to your mom? In which case, I think it would also just be fine to say like, I love you so much. You know, I think you shouldn't be giving him all this money. Please don't complain about this to me anymore. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, if the mom is complaining because she doesn't know how to ask for help. Uh, that is different than she's complaining and just that's just how that's going to go until something changes. Um, and I think in that second situation, you should just refuse to engage with that. I, I do want to also take a, a slightly different angle on this one, which is like, 
it doesn't sound like the letter writer is concerned about elder abuse, but it 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 certainly seems like this could be setting up a situation where that happens in the future. Mm-hmm. Like it's absolutely possible to be, you know, retired and in your late 60s or early 70s in good health and just have a very um uh, you know, complicated relationship with your kid where you yeah. give in to whatever they ask for without it rising to the level of elder abuse, but like yes. You may want to have a separate conversation with your parents that doesn't necessarily initially start by being about your brother. That's just like, do you guys have like a solid sense of what money you can rely on in the future? Do you have Mm -hmm. like living wills in place? Do you know what you like? Mm -hmm. This might be just a good opportunity to talk to them about their future planning. And then I think he will probably inevitably come up and you might want to keep an eye on it. Like maybe your brother's just kind of a sponger, but. I, I worry that like five, ten years from now, he might get angry with them for running out of money. They might be more vulnerable. They might have more health problems. I feel like I, I don't want to say like obviously he must be abusing them, but like this right. is a situation that's set up for failure. Yes. Yes. As many conversations about money where no one wants to talk about money often are. Yeah. Yeah, this is really bad. This is like $100,000 over three years. From retired people. From retired people after already like covering your rent and utilities. Like, yeah, boy, oh boy. Right. And the fact that the mom has complained about it, you know, it could be just like that's what she feels she's supposed to do. But it also could be like, oh, this is starting to affect me and maybe we should talk about this. But it's also painful when the other person is the favorite and mm. you worry that, like, if I try to talk to you honestly about, a com- like, a situation where he's actively taking advantage of and hurting you mm-hmm. and your response is, no, I love it. He's my favorite. Right. <laughs> um, that would be really, I think, emotionally painful. Yes. Um, and so if if that is the outcome and it sounds like that may very well be, I think, again, it's going to be really, really good to stick to your initial plan of not giving them money yourself yep, and also figuring out like, do I want to go take a little time and like talk about how this has affected me with a therapist or do I want to take a little distance from their dysfunction? Because I guess the one upside of not being the favorite hit here is that you've been able to develop like an independent life mm-hmm. of your own. Yeah. Yeah. Which certainly. is great. Yep. Independence is a type of bird. Go birds. <laughs> go birds. Um, and, you know, congratulations to your parents on having a rental unit they don't need to rent out and $100,000 laying around. Like, yeah, that must be nice. Yep. Yep. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I think that's kind of it. I I think I'm ready to move on to the next one, um, which feels slightly more relatable than, uh, you know, my $100,000 parents. Yes. Um, And The subject is, I think I'm afraid of my friend. Dear Prudence, I've been friends with a girl from college for about five years now. She was one of three or so friends I made in all four years. We still maintain regular contact in a group chat and occasional phone calls. Once we were no longer living together and seeing each other daily, I felt the strangest sense of ease. 
She's not aggressive or cruel, but reflecting on our friendship, I realized how distressed and fearful I would get when I thought I'd upset her, even over trivial things like eating the leftovers of a shared meal. There were times that she avoided speaking to me, even in our small apartment, and wouldn't explain to me what I'd done wrong or what I needed to apologize for. I'd get sick with fear wondering how I'd wronged her, getting stomach aches and feeling jittery and cold for whole days. And then poof, the unstated grievance would be forgiven and all would return to normal. She often told me I was too closed off and private with my emotions, but I'm coming to realize that maybe I just didn't want to confide in her specifically. I remember having a panic attack after asking her not to ask for details about my therapy sessions. I'm writing because I don't know what to do about our friendship now. I can't imagine telling her out of the blue that I find being her friend stressful. Just the idea makes my gut twist. She's living hundreds of miles away, but we talk almost daily through the group chat, and I don't think I could cut contact with her completely without cutting off other people I really love and miss. I'm also afraid she'll sense that I'm pulling away and confront me about it. I don't know how to bring up years of hidden feelings. I feel guilty for having hidden my feelings for so long. I can't imagine how painful it would be to find out after years that a close friend of mine was made anxious by my presence. She's mentioned possibly flying out to visit me sometime this or next year, and I dread the idea. How can I pull away from this? Uh, <laughs> I, a lot happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got a sense here, both that it sounds like there are some things that your former roommate did that were genuinely difficult and mm-hmm. like not helpful ways to deal with conflict. But I didn't get the read that like, she was out to get you or trying to hurt you. So I I think that's part of what's complicated here is a real sense of the letter writer realizes I have an incredibly hard time sometimes realizing how I feel until after the fact. Mm -hmm. And then I also have a really hard time, especially with people I care about or I'm in close proximity with, saying what I need. Mm -hmm. And I'm just starting to realize that now and I don't know how to address that. And and that can be hard because it's like, on the one hand, those that, that feeling of uh, skittishness and, and a desire to pull away from her is really real. And then on the other hand, I think there's probably also the sense of she's mostly a pretty good person. I'm sure that she would be upset if she knew that she'd hurt me so much. And, and that makes me feel guilty. And those can be a difficult pair of feelings to have at the same time. Do you find this at all relatable? I think so. I mean, I feel like a lot of us have probably been hurt by something that at the time where we don't feel like it's big enough to build up to bring up or that it isn't anything that is necessary to bring up or whatever but then if they keep building up and they keep happening i think sometimes it becomes a much bigger issue and then Mm -hmm. at some point you realize oh i can't say anything about this thing because i didn't say anything about those other things which is not necessarily a true realization that you have to abide by but it's like something that happens it's like oh i didn't say anything about it then so how could they know that this is something that hurt me or that i just didn't like and i don't know i think it can be hard to balance that because that is partially like i've done that where something has bothered me to the point where i just like can't engage with it and that's on me for letting it build up a little bit but that doesn't mean that saying it now is going to make the other person feel good (laughs) Um, so I don't know. I don't know what the best solution there is, especially, I mean, possibly just doing some open communication now after realizing they've kind of not done that for a little bit. Yeah. I know the letter writer mentioned that they had been in therapy at the time. Um, I don't know if the letter writer is currently in therapy. Um, if this is something that they talk about a lot in therapy, it may be that they 
have a ton of strategies in place for dealing with anxiety, in which case, you know, I would hope that you'd be bringing this up with your therapist a lot if you're not and, and you're able to, if you're able to afford it. Um, I hope you would consider going back to therapy. Um, I, I think like the first and easiest thing to do is leave the group chat. Um, I, I think sometimes it can feel like if I leave a group chat, I'm telling my <laughs> friends that I hate them and I wish they would die. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I think that that is not actually what is happening. If the idea of being really, really straightforward about it right now sounds too overwhelming, you don't have to. You can just say something like, hey, guys, I'm going to tap out of the group chat for a while. Mm-hmm. It's a little difficult for me to keep up with all of this, but, um, you know, I, I will keep in touch. I'll, I'll be in touch. Um, this is not the last you'll hear from me. And then just leave the group chat. I was going to say, I think that also, you know, gives the letter writer a better chance to build and strengthen those relationships that sh- they are most concerned concerned about losing that's like one of their concerns is that they don't want to cut off this person completely because they don't want to also cut off other people and i think just removing themselves from that forced group interaction and engaging with people individually is a very good start yeah but like Group chats are not a lifelong commitment. You didn't <laughs> sign a contract. Mm-hmm. They're not the only way to keep in touch with people. Um, they're I, often I do a think bad way to keep in touch with people. They're often a very bad way. It's often like everybody kind of talking at like the same times and then disappearing for hours. And yeah. sometimes one person wants to talk a lot and other people get ed- like it's a particular mode of communication that did not exist like in this way, like 10, 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's not the kind of thing that you need to be committed to for the rest of your life. So just as a general rule, even if it sounds really like stressful or difficult, it will be good to just like practice writing out what you need to say, sending that text message, and then exiting the group thread. Um, I think you can do that. And then if that eases some of it off and you find it a little bit easier to have like low key interactions with her, you can, you know, you can let that relationship kind of fade. Lots of relationships fade within the first couple of years of graduating college. So mm-hmm. I don't want to say the only way out of this is by having like a an awkward, difficult conversation mm-hmm. with someone who lives hundreds of miles <laughs> away. You could also just like leave the group thread, occasionally text her back, you know, be mm-hmm. busy when she plans on visiting you and then let that one dribble out. That also might be anxiety inducing on its own. I, mm-hmm. I only want to offer that as an option if you just feel like any kind of honest conversation is too much for you right now. Mm-hmm. If you do feel like, I think I need to, I think the best thing would be to do a little writing first mm. and maybe to ask yourself, like, what do I feel when she talks to me now? Like, when I see that I have a call or a text from her, how do I feel? Mm-hmm. Um, and if the answer is, like, anxious, panicked, on high alert, can I, like, ask myself questions about, like, where does that come from? What am I afraid she's going to do to me or ask for? What am I afraid I won't get? Um, just so you have a, a slightly bigger picture of what parts of you feel affected, um, what parts of you feel unmanageable. Um, I think that will be useful. And I think the writing also can maybe give the letter writer a better idea of if this is a friendship that they want to maintain or keep. Like if this is something like, oh, man, I really wish I had said something because now like I feel bummed that we can't be friends versus like, oh, actually, no, I don't think I care about this particular connection. I just cared about like our group dynamic. And I think both the leaving the group chat, but also the writing it down can maybe tease some of that out. 
I think that's wise because I think that will also inform the conversation you might have with her. Because if you do feel like there are things about her that I value, there are things about this friendship that I value. And if we could just like name some of these things, I think I might be able to see my way through to occasionally like having a pleasant chat. Mm -hmm. Because if that's the case and if you think there's a decent chance she'll be able to hear some of this, it might really help to say, I haven't really known how to bring this up with you. I feel a little self-conscious because – the time for these conversations was really when we lived together. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it takes me a long time to kind of realize how I'm feeling. So this is, you know, this is just how it came up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really hard time with the way that we handled conflict as roommates. Uh, I, you often gave me the silent treatment and wouldn't explain why you were mad at me, which made me feel really anxious and on edge and um, like I didn't know how I had hurt you or offended you. And I find that that kind of stays with me in our friendship now so that sometimes during our conversations, I feel anxious again that you are going to get really angry with me and shun me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't say this to say that you're a jerk or or that you're a bad person. I just I need to know that was really hard. And, and I find the after effects kind of linger. And if her response to that is really, really bad, then you know, okay, maybe we just need to take a break. And mm-hmm. if her response is some version of, fuck, I'm really sorry. I think you're right. I do have a habit of doing this. I want to do better. You know, then you can let her know maybe you just need a little space for now, but you like still care about her and you want to revisit this in a couple of months. Maybe there's room to meet each other in the middle. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So I feel like those are a couple of decent options that go from like, basically not talking about it with her to basically being completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think m- the main takeaway here is that I would encourage the letter writer to feel like, you know, you are allowed to lose touch with friends from college. That happens. <laughs> yes. You're allowed to leave group chats. <laughs> um, you you don't have to be, you know, completely, completely straightforward about everything with somebody who doesn't live near you and isn't a huge part of your daily life. And um, good luck. Yeah. 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 It is it is a really good thing to be able to find strategies for dealing with your anxiety so that you are able to bring things up with the people you love in the moment yes. because that just makes life a lot easier. Yes, absolutely true. All right, will you read our next letter? I will. Subject, how to reestablish contact with estranged parents. Dear Prudence, I am currently estranged from my immediate family in some respects mutually. I recently reached out to my brother and gave him my phone number. He never responded, but my mother later messaged me. I was receptive, but she immediately began bringing up old wounds, specifically a Facebook post she would not have had access to. I chastised her for snooping and ended the conversation. I would like to reopen communication with my parents, but I don't feel ready to tackle the issues that led us here. I currently don't have health insurance and thus am without the guidance of a therapist, and I would really prefer family therapy over anything else. However, I've moved away and it's not an option. I don't think it's unreasonable for me to say that I want to build, rebuild our relationship slowly, working up to the major issues. I understand why my mother would want to tackle them right away, but I'm just not ready for that. Additionally, I would only want contact over email. I don't want them disrupting my life by contacting me on the phone. How can I politely express this to my parents? I feel that I am well I feel that I am within my rights to reestablish contact on my own terms. I don't want to be impolite, but my parents exacerbate a lot of my mental health issues and I have a wonderful life now that I want to protect. I think it's reasonable to start out by wishing each other happy holidays and working up to the big issues, but apparently that's not what my parents want. 
So I part of the reason that I wanted to include this is because I have so many questions about like how to become estranged that I thought I should try to balance it out with somebody who's like looking to take the off ramp. Tell me if you agree. I think we can agree this is not things are not off to a great start. No, no, I would agree with that. Like and I, I hope letter writer you realize this. So I, I think and I say that not to say like you you were wrong or foolish to want to reestablish contact. I understand sometimes it's like, yeah, they haven't really changed, but other things have changed such mm-hmm. that I'm willing to to try something. So I guess my main advice here would be have very low expectations. Yes, I agree, especially starting from the reaching out to the letter writer's brother who didn't respond, but maybe passed the phone number onto the mother, but the mother immediately dove into something that was a little bit hurtful or just something they didn't want to talk about at the time. Um, right. It's it's a bad start with both the brother and the mom, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think the letter writer is right to say that they are not being unreasonable, saying they want to start slowly. You know, the small talk of rebuilding relationships rather than, you know, diving right into crying on a therapist's couch together or something. But I think that sending that email saying, this is how I feel about this situation. And if you can't respect those boundaries, like we're going to go back to not talking. Right. It's always hard to giving this kind of advice because like, Generally speaking, I don't want people to be in a habit with like friends or family to have to say like, these are the rules. And if you can't abide by them, you go. Um, That's kind of why they're like a last resort, you know, like ideally you have a relationship with your family where while nobody is perfect, if you say like, "I, I, I can't have this conversation right now. We've talked about it so many times. I need a break. Somebody else will say like okay, like, I'm frustrated, but I understand that everyone has a right to end a conversation. Yes. So, yeah, I agree that, like, the one upside here is, you know, you can handle being totally estranged from these people. You've done it before. You can do it again. So just in terms of logistics, like, it sucks that your mom has your number now. (laughs) um, But just, you know, block her number, block your father's number, block anyone's number you don't want to get a call or a text from. Um, I'm fairly sure when you have blocked someone on your phone, they just like, if they try to call you, it just keeps ringing. And if they try to text you, it always looks like it's sending. It's not like they're going to get a big like response that says Mm -hmm. like, this person blocked you. Right. So at least there's that. And then I think, yeah, to send the email and just say like, mom, I'm ready to establish some contact. I'm not ready to talk on the phone. And I'd rather just like start with small stuff. If you're available for that, let's do it. And then if her response is, no, here's nine times you disappointed me, then you just, you know, you delete the email, you block the email address. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of family stuff, people want to say like, oh, it's family. The rules are different. And sometimes that's true, but oftentimes that can get you into a lot of difficult situations because, you know, if you had not talked to someone for a very long time that wasn't related to you, you wouldn't necessarily dive right into like, here's the ways you've wronged me Um, because you want to like feel each other out and build a little bit of trust and whatever. And like give some people some time to like 
build something more casual and maybe less painful than immediately diving into old memories. Yeah, but I, I will also say, too, like the, the questions at the end were sort of like, I think it's reasonable and I get that. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. The The point is, I think that it's reasonable for you to offer them this. Mm -hmm. And then if they don't want to do it, it kind of doesn't matter how reasonable it is. Yes. Um, it's not like you can appeal to me or some other like arbiter who says like, no, 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 the letter writer did ask for something reasonable. <laughs> so you have to give it to them, I think. It's true. But I also feel like a lot of times these conversations go with a parent or someone being like, well, you're being unreasonable. Right. Um, and well, they and, can and, say that as much as they want. But it, yeah. And like you said, it doesn't really matter because you think it's reasonable and they don't. And you will just have to disagree on that. Right. And that's hard because it may be that what feels to you like this is the only way I can manage having you in my life because otherwise you steamroll over me and yell at me all the time to them might feel like, well, you're trying to dictate the terms upon which I can be in your life. And I feel like already like I'm being monitored um, and, you know, w without saying like, therefore, your parents are good, misunderstood people like right. it, it, it would it would not shock me if they felt like that was too intense. Um, so I, I think the most you can do is you, you, you said it fairly politely in your letter to me. Um, I think maybe the only thing I wouldn't say is like, um, you make my mental health, yeah, you exacerbate worse. my mental yes. health issues just because mm -hmm. I think that's not going to, um, result in any kind of like a healthy or mutually respectful conversation. So I think just go with like, you know, I, I want to be able to talk to you. Here's what I can offer you. If that's something you think you can do, let's give it a try. And if it's not, let's stick with what we know works. Um, and I'm sorry, I, I was without health insurance for like nine years. So uh, I I can definitely relate to that sense of like, well, therapy would be great right about now. Yep. But my insurance is some Zycan. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I'm sorry. It's brutal. Yeah. And I hope that, you know if you're able to find like I know I'm always saying this but like if your city has any in-person support groups even if it's only tangentially related to this but it's something that you do experience I think there's just something that's often very helpful about like sitting in a damn circle of chairs and listening to other people say like man families are hard aren't they yep it's it's true mm -hmm. and yeah good luck um Again, the upside is if it doesn't work out, you know that you can live without talking to these people. All right. Time for pity sex. Oh. Is uh is it my turn to read this or is it I yours? I don't remember. I think I I think I read the parents one. This is definitely one of those ways in which you and I are just like so much alike that it makes working together challenging. I think <laughs> I feel like if you and I were stranded on a desert island or something, we would both keep asking each other like do you know how to do this? Like, do no, we... if we were stranded on a desert island, I would have my notebook and we would write everything down and it would be fine. But I don't currently have my notebook, so I haven't written anything down. And thus, uh, I think it's your turn, but I'm not sorry. That's great. I actually just got a text from my producer, Phil, saying it's your turn, um, which <laughs> is why I hope that if we are ever shipwrecked, it's with Phil. Thank you, Phil. Because Phil will remember whose turn it is to do stuff. <laughs> Subject. I do not want pity sex. Dear Prudence, my husband and I have been together for 10 years with no children, and we have an amazing relationship, but our sex life has become non-existent over the last two months. 
I've gently approached him about this, and he'll smile sheepishly, acknowledge it, but still, nothing. He works a lot, but he's been working like this for almost a year. I don't expect much the nights that he works, but once a week isn't pushing it, right? I can't help but wonder if he's tired, if it's my weight, if it's his libido because he's getting older. We're both a little stressed about our jobs and living situation. Together, we're fighting through a rough patch in our finances that should smooth over by the summertime. This issue is not a relationship-altering situation. I don't want pity, sex, or half-hearted attempts. And if I keep mentioning it, that's what I'll get. Before this break, we used to have sex at least two to three times a week. Is there a certain amount of time of no sex until it starts to be a major concern? I think there is. And I think that time is when it bothers you enough that you write to an advice columnist about it. So, yes, absolutely. You've reached that point. That point might be different for different people, but I think that's, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Do you like pity sex, Alyssa? Are you a fan of pity sex? (laughs) No, no, no. Can't say that I would be into that at all. (laughs) Darn. I was I was hoping I was hoping for somebody who was like, oh, I love pity sex. It's my favorite. I feel like that (laughs) Um, could kind of. Sorry, I can't be that person for you. No, no, no. I don't want to pity answer you either. (laughs) Oh, oh, thank you, pal. Um, I, I will say, though, there is a difference between pity sex of like, God, anything to shut you up. Versus like, it sounds like you've had um, maybe not exactly like vague conversations about it, but it doesn't sound like you've communicated to your husband yet how much this has affected you. And so I think at least my thought here is that your fear is like, if I tell my husband how this is making me feel and then my husband does have sex with me or makes time to have sex with me, um, it will somehow be fraudulent because he's doing it because he's aware of my inner emotional state. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I only say that because like historically, that's kind of been my approach to dealing with this problem, which is like, if I have to ask for something, it didn't count because you should be able to (laughs) read my mind and make me feel wanted all the time. And I I don't say that, by the way, letter writer, to at all trivialize like your your pain or your feelings of rejection here. I, I relate to them in the extreme. I just think that's a mindset that's going to like actively make it harder for you to get what you want because that voice is going to tell you, well, if you have to say all this stuff to your husband, then the only reason he would want to have sex for you is because he feels bad for you and thinks you're pathetic for being so needy. And so therefore, any sex that you could get if you asked for sex, honestly, wouldn't be sex that's worth getting, which is why you should keep this all to yourself and just try harder to, you know, you mentioned your weight here, like just try harder to quote unquote, like look nicer or quote unquote, lose weight so that he wants to have sex with you. And then when that doesn't do the work that having an honest conversation would do, then you can feel even worse about yourself. And I think that would put you down a road where you would just be unnecessarily angry with yourself. Does that make sense? Does that seem way off base to you? No, that's. I think that seems very relatable. And I think it's really a conversation I've had with a lot of friends over the years to some degree. And I think that having the conversation not in a time where you might be wanting to have sex would be great like daylight on a couch in a like somewhere that seems less like trying to seduce him or trying to have him go for that pity sex situation as we were discussing um because i think that you know if you do it at night when you're in bed maybe that is not the best time to have that conversation i think especially because like Right now, the framing is, I want it, he doesn't, 
it's something he sheepishly acknowledges and then kind of like apologizes for. So the dynamic is like, he owes me an explanation. And I think more the thing that you want, like in addition to the sex, is also to know like what's going on with my partner that's caused this change. Um, And you have a lot of theories, some of which may be totally relevant and some of which might not be. But I think um, to, to frame it as a conversation, not of like you owe me answers so much as like, this is really hard for me and I want you to know because I would want to know if you were feeling this way. So I'm going to put my cards on the table and say, I love the sex that we used to have. Um, It's been really hard for me to stop having sex these last two months. I've worried about my own appearance. Um, I worry that it's connected to our financial concerns. I worry that it's like I keep guessing and I don't want to guess. I want to know what's going on with you, even if the answer is like, I've lost interest in sex. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. I-, I would rather know that than have to speculate because the speculating makes me feel really isolated and scared. Yeah. And speculating, you could speculate to the point of just like absolutely no return and you're just down a very dark hole when it may not actually be any of the things you've speculated because there's literally infinite options and It could be any of them. It could be none of them. And you're not going to know unless you have a conversation. And I think to really, um, I also get that, especially for somebody who has like kind of abruptly lost interest in sex. Oftentimes they don't feel so like collected and confident about that change. They're like, oh, thanks for asking. I'd love to tell (laughs) you all about it. Like my guess is he will remain a little cagey and a little possibly defensive at first. And so that's part of why I think it just needs to be a conversation that you leave a lot of room for pauses in it. Um, And again, just really stress, like, you don't have to, if you don't know exactly that, I would want to know that too. Like, I I just want to hear from you, like, what sounds good to you? What do you want? What do you not want? Like, are there ways that we can be physically intimate that aren't like, we're going to fuck now? Um, But I want to know what you're feeling because when I don't, I guess. And when I guess, I guess wrong because I'm not inside your head. And and my main thing, in addition to, to wanting sex more, um, is to feel like I n- know what page we're both on. Um, and, and at that point, I hope, especially again, if you just stress like how hard this is and what you are and aren't asking him for, like you're not saying like, give me a number, like give me a number of times a week that you can promise you'll have sex or give me a date by which this is all going to be over. This That's not what you're seeking from him. You're just seeking to know like, hey man, what's your mysterious internal condition that no matter how much I love you, I will never be able to guess. Yeah. And I think also that conversation, um, approaching it from that kind of open-ended way that you were talking about, Dan, is like, instead of going in being like, okay, how can we fix this? Um, And fixing this meaning like the sex as opposed to the gap in communication in the relationship because trying to frame it as like, how can we fix this sex life situation? I don't know, can be very uncomfortable and does not necessarily need to be an outcome-based conversation. Yeah, or or rather like you can know that like, yes, absolutely, you know, you have enjoyed historically a really robust sex life and you do hope for its return. But before the return, you want to know what's going on with your partner and you want to be there for each other. Um, so it's not just like, give me back the version of my husband that worked. It's like, let me be in this with you so we're not like walking through it together but separate. 
and and just to like both really own like you are just allowed to say all of these things it it is not a shameful or a pitiable condition to say i like sex i enjoy the sex that we've had together i would like to have sex again and so i i understand that like if in that moment your husband was like fine let's take our pants off and do it i totally understand why that's not sex that you want to have but simply having these conversations as part of the bigger picture that is not um asking for pity sex at all good luck right back to us i want to hear how you're doing <sighs> um, we do have time for a voicemail if you're amenable. I don't yeah. know if you have to rush off. No, I'm um, happy to do one. Dear Prudence, I'm a newish mother of a wonderful six-month-old. I've always struggled with depression and anxiety, and one of the forms it takes is I constantly live in a very messy house, both unable to find energy to clean and organize it to a level I find acceptable, and horrified at the idea of having people over because they'll see. We kind of just don't have people over, and the people who do visit are close family members, so I still feel anxious and embarrassed around them. I want to live in a condo utopia, but instead there is clutter and detritus on every surface. Not in a gross way, just in a stuff way. My husband never seems to want to give anything away or spend his time on cleaning or decluttering either, and I can't really blame him for that. But I do find myself getting angry both at him and society that I'm the one who will be blamed for the state of our home and that he feels no discomfort the way I do. Late in pregnancy, my level of anxiety about this skyrocketed as we acquired more stuff, you know, baby stuff, our stuff, and I pictured people visiting us and eventually the baby moving around and needing a clean, safe house to be able to move around in. As a mixed blessing, once I gave birth, there were other things to worry about. And I got calm about visitors because I told myself, true or not, that no one judges the clutter when you have a new baby. But now my child is about to start crawling and I don't feel like I have the same excuses anymore. The anxiety is starting to bubble up again, and I feel almost panicky about how I'm going to get my house in control for him. My husband and I are fortunate in that, within reason, money is not an issue, just time and energy. Is there anything you can recommend or anything I can do that isn't just looking around while I nurse and feel like crying? Thank you. Signed, Overwhelmed. Well, I don't have a newborn, but I relate very much to that. I was really excited um, when you started texting me pictures of all the lamps that you were getting <laughs> because I want you to have so many lamps. Although your place wasn't that messy. That's because there's very little stuff in my place right now. My my room at my mom's is still a disaster. Sorry, mom. I see. I see. Sorry, mom. <laughs> um, what helps you in those moments or does nothing help you? Is it just like I have this problem all the time? I got nothing that works. Sorry. So it is an ongoing problem like i've always had trouble keeping things tidy and maintaining tidy spaces it's not like the voicemail says it's not necessarily like dirty dishes or like anything super gross it's just like piles of clutter everywhere and my brain does not automatically know how to put things away. And I don't know if anyone's does. I, I can say that my family is not an example of knowing where things go automatically. Um, and if someone does, please share your secrets. But for me, the only thing that works is like, I make lists. I make 
very specific lists. So instead of being like, I'm going to clean my bedroom, which is an overwhelmingly large task to me, I say, I'm going to put all of the dirty clothes into the hamper. I say, I'm going to go through all of my pants and get rid of things that don't fit. And breaking it down into like very small, manageable steps that you can like check off a list is for me the only way that anything ever looks tidy. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to do it for, it doesn't have to be a marathon. You don't have to do it for eight hours. You can be like, I have 15 minutes while this kid is napping quietly. Let me like throw out this mail or whatever tiny steps you can take to, because it's true that like when you have a small child client, like crawling around, they can move. And that's when you start realizing how many hazards are on the ground. Um, yeah. I think that's really helpful. I think the one really good thing about this letter is you say like within reason, money's not a problem. Um, because that that's great. I, I, I would recommend hiring a professional organizer Mm-hmm. Um, and possibly also seeing a therapist about this, possibly a couples counselor about this, depending on how willing your husband is to address this with you. I, I think especially because you demand you, you you describe this as being like, this is a historical problem for both me and my partner. I often go through cycles where I really, really want to address it. Like my internal sense of motivation is very, very high. But for some reason that I can't quite understand, that doesn't translate into physical action. And then I feel really, really guilty about that. Um, so, so something's happening in between the, God, I really wish I lived somewhere organized and then the actual ability to go through your things, develop a consistent, coherent organizational system, get rid of things that you don't need and like set yourself up so that in the future it doesn't happen again. So there's a, like, if you simply Google like professional organizer in the name of your city, things will turn up. If you wanted to Google like professional organizer plus hoarding or like executive function disorder that might also be something that would be useful i don't know that that's necessarily a label you need to apply to yourself but in the sense that your mess creates real emotional distress and that emotional distress is coupled with an inability to get rid of things that might be close enough that it's helpful um I'm looking right now just like at one of those websites and they like define chronic disorganization as something that persists over a long period of time, uh, frequently undermines quality of life and recurs despite repeated self-help attempts, which again, sounds like your situation. Could have to do with anxiety, could have to do with ADHD, could have to do with depression, hoarding, hoarding related disorders. You know, it it kind of doesn't matter right now which one it is. Like, obviously, like, Self-knowledge is always great. So I hope you're able to maybe identify more some of the feelings that come up for you about this. But but basically, seek out somebody who organizes homes professionally, possibly also a therapist who can help you deal with the feelings of like worthlessness or self-recrimination that are coming up and try to address them uh, as, as like two equally important sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. And I'd say also if your husband is resistant to throwing anything away. That's something that you could possibly see a couples therapist about, or maybe have like a, just have a conversation. I don't know how in depth of a conversation you've had. If you've explained that this is causing you like real emotional distress. Um, But because if you live in the same house, you're going to have to find some common ground there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a really, really good point. And I also think that, like, obviously the word hoarding can sometimes feel, like, big and scary. Like, there may be ways in which you are, like, chronically disorganized. That doesn't mean you're you're hoarding. Um, I, I don't mean to, like, throw that word out as if to say, like, 
this is who you are mm-hmm. um, or, or, you know, this is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And eventually, like, you'll die under a pile of newspapers. That's like not it at all. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's a lot of really good like a lot of people have this problem. You're so not alone. There are professionals who work with people who struggle with this stuff. There's a lot of strategies. I'm, again, I'm on another one of these websites and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so great. It's like a standard strategy called Ohio only handle it once for the problem of churning because difficulty making decisions is a common problem and many clients lack organizational systems. As a result, a client may start to work on a pile of items, become frustrated with what to do with the items or where to put them and then put the object down in the same or different pile. Ohio raises awareness of churning behavior. This is great. I'm like, I never even thought about, but that's something I've totally experienced in my own life. Yeah, that's how I handle my mail now is basically like either I need this immediately and i'm dealing with it right now or i'm throwing it out um, oh that's really good it's the only way to manage mail otherwise Clearly. you end up with jake peralta's mail tub and it's a nightmare yeah i'm i'm better with, with my mail now than i have been historically mm-hmm. mostly because i've now successfully switched almost everything over to email and, and that's less frightening to me than having to like rip open envelopes but i absolutely have gone through the thing of like here is six months worth of mail. And I have <laughs> problems. Yep. Yep. That's very stressful. Um, yep. But yeah, I just think the, the best part of the letter here is the fact that you have money. That's just really good news. That's going to make this a lot easier to deal with. Hire somebody to help you on multiple fronts. Yes. Because I agree that it is totally reasonable to have a messy house when you have a child. I have will and never I never have and never will judge any parent for having a messy house because I was always the child causing my mom's house to be a mess. Yeah. Um, but if it's causing you distress, then that's something to address separately. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully to be able to have expectations that are like reasonable and yet aren't like, OK, starting tomorrow, I'm going to live in an incredible like minimalist yoga house. <laughs> um, right. Right. Because it's also okay to be like a slightly cluttered person. Um, and good luck. You're going through a lot. I hope your husband, at the very least, um, does not get in your way about this. Like, I hope he can be helpful. But if not that, then my second hope for him is to just say, like, great, good for you. And good luck to the crawling baby. A crawling baby is a type of bird. <laughs> Go birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alyssa, thank you so, so much. Thanks for, for having being. me. My most bird-like guest. <laughs> That's me. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. You don't have to use your real name or location, and we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. The letter writer keeps saying resentment towards the wife, but the wife is working. She's not your problem. She's not why you don't have a job. 
I, yes. I, I do understand that, like, in the sense that you two agreed to move together and she came up with the idea for moving because it had to do with her work. Yeah, absolutely. She's not the reason you're not able to find work now. And there's nothing she could do short of going back in time and going for another 10 years at a job that was, like, deeply unsatisfying for her. So that's not to say you can't talk to her about these feelings, but I just think, like, it will not get you a job any faster if you focus on your resentment for her, um, and it will not make your life any easier. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.